All right, First John chapter 5, look with me if you would please, and verse 7, and we'll read through verse 12. First John 5, verse 7, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Uh, it's important as we read through these passages, these particular text and verses of this particular portion of John's epistle, that we do so with an understanding, again, of the entirety of the text up to this point of the epistle. Uh, as we remember, if you will, I'm going to review some things here that are important before we uh, delve into these verses. Also, I want to provide somewhat of an overview of these verses and then begin to look at them more uh, specifically uh, tonight. So we're going to try to accomplish all of this this evening in our study. But I want us to be mindful of the entirety of the text here and not just uh, not just cherry-pick verses or, or read things out of context or, or read things uh, without being mindful of the context in, in light of everything that is being said in this particular uh, epistle. And as well, obviously remembering that this fifth chapter of this epistle, their final chapter, which I know the chapter divisions and verse divisions were all added a much later date. John didn't have these in his, in his epistle, obviously. But yet, this in the conclusion of his letter, as he is finalizing the letter, if you will, or his, his epistle to the, uh, to the church, we see, or to believers, that is, in general, we see that uh, chapter 5, as it's marked for us, is a summarization of the letter. And that's, if you think about a letter in, in general, often this would be done. If you were to write a letter about some specific thing, um, you would, of course, have an introdu- introduction into the letter. You would address those that you are, of course, speaking to. And then you would begin to address the matters at hand, which are, are needful um, to be addressed. And, and the, the thesis statement of the letter, if you will, which John states in the beginning of the letter, in the first chapter. And then, as well, when you come to the end of the letter, it's not uncommon for one to, again, uh, revisit certain areas in a, in a, in a brief manner that has already been addressed in concluding the letter to draw attention back to these matters. And really that's what John's doing here in this fifth chapter. We find that he is again addressing the, and emphasizing the truths that he's already stated and made known throughout the entirety of the letter up to this point. And so throughout our study of 1 John, we have outlined eight tests by which believers are to examine themselves. And these tests reveal the authenticity of one's professed relationship and fellowship with the Lord. Uh, we saw, first of all, and I'm going to run through these very quickly, the obedience test in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, the love test, chapter 2, 7 through 14, the life test, chapter 2, 15 through 17, the truth test, chapter 2, 18 through 24, the righteousness test, chapter 2, 25 through 29, the sanctification test, chapter 3, 1 through 10, the discernment test, chapter 4, 1 through 6, and the fear test or perfect love, chapter 4, 15 through 18. In verse 6, we saw as well last week, we read, and we didn't read this this evening, but let's read this as we enter into this portion of the text. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Now within this verse, John expounds on the witness of God, specifically his witness in Jesus Christ. 
And we saw last week that John mentions Jesus came by water. And in Matthew 11, or 3, 11 through 17, we see the introduction of the earthly ministry of Jesus was at the time of his baptism by John the Baptist. And Jesus explained to John the necessity for John to baptize him so that all righteousness would be fulfilled. In Matthew 3, 13 through 15, we see this. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. As I mentioned last week, the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance, and yet Jesus, who is sinless, and his baptism obviously therefore was not for that of repentance or turning from sin or from unbelief to belief, but rather was an act of, of humility. It was humble submission to the will of the Father and the work of redemption. Jesus came by water in that his messianic ministry was introduced by his baptism, which was followed by the Holy Spirit descending upon him and the Father declaring that he was pleased in his Son, Matthew three sixteen and 17. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus came by water, meaning, of course, between the age of, of his, between his birth, the time of his birth, and 12 years old, we really don't know anything at all until he was in the temple, of course, and he was teaching the, the, the teachers. And then in, from 12 to 30, we really don't know anything that went on in the life of Christ until his, the introduction of his earthly ministry. And that's what's taking place in John chapter 2. If John chapter 1, of course, does not literally record the baptism of Christ, but it is, it is obviously the same time that uh, we see recorded in, in the other Gospels. And Jesus was baptized by John. But we do find in John chapter 1 that Jesus, or John is announcing that Christ is here. Behold the Lamb of God. And that, that there's one that comes before me or comes after me that is preferred above me or before me because he was before me or is before me, which of course is Jesus. And so he came by water in the sense that in his earthly ministry, his ministry was introduced. And notice what Jesus said to John. When John is beginning to debate whether or not he should baptize Jesus, Jesus said to him that... Uh, you need to do this, all right, that we fulfill all righteousness. And so John then says, well, that's a good enough reason for me. And so he submits to, of course, the command of Christ and baptizes the Lord, which again was not for the sake of Jesus as far as any, any sense of repentance or anything like that, but an act of humility. Remember, he was born in a manger, recall with me, and then, of course, in the introduction of his, uh, or placed in a manger at his birth, and then, of course, he, in the introduction of his ministry, in John chapter 2 is the wedding of Cana, where, of course, the first miracle of Christ takes place, where he turns the water into wine. But yet, prior to that, Jesus is baptized, and, and he's introduced as being the Lamb of God in John's Gospel, chapter 1. And that, of course, is the introduction of the Lord Jesus in light of his ministry, the ministry of Christ for those three and a half years until the time of his death, of course. And so he came by water. But then second, Jesus came by blood. John emphasizes this in this verse, in verse 6. He mentions it twice, that he came by water, he came by blood, not by water only, but also by blood. And as the commencement of the earthly ministry of Jesus was done or introduced or announced by water, so in like manner, the culmination of his earthly ministry of redemption was by blood. For it was on the cross, of course, that the redemptive work of Christ was fulfilled. In John 19, 25 through 37, we see that to be true. And the completion of redemption's work was sealed by the fulfillment of the prophecy in that which was stated that Jesus would be pierced in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And the water and blood of which John speaks in this epistle was the Father's record of His Son as He clarifies in this epistle. 
And so his witness of the person and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ is the record that is the witness of God the Father. Now within this portion of the epistle, as we've read this evening, John explains the importance of God's testimony of his Son, which was John definitively, which John definitively declares is a greater te- testimony than that of men. In 1 John 5, 9, read with me again. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. Jesus himself spoke to the importance of the testimony of men. Yet Jesus further spoke to the importance of the greater testimony, which is the testimony of God the Father. We see this also recorded in John chapter 5 in the Gospel of John, verses 31 through 42. Jesus said, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not, the, not testimony for man, but these things I say that ye might be saved. He was a burning and shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me, that the Father hath sent me, and the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, ye believe, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. And I, I receive not honor from men, but I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. So Jesus here explains that although the people received and rejoiced in the testimony of John, specifically John the Baptist, for a season, God's testimony is eternal. He's saying God's testimony, God's witness is greater. And he says, I don't just simply bear witness of myself. He says, but the very works which the Father has sent me to do, they, are the, they bear witness of the truth that God has sent me, and I'm completing his work. And he says, John testified of me, and you, you bear witness of John's testimony in the sense that you... You uh, rejoiced even in in John and his life and in his testimony for a time being for a season. So the testimony of God concerning his son, we must recognize, is not only the testimony that Jesus is the Christ, but is also the testimony of Christ within those who have come to saving faith in Jesus. So as John stated in verse 10, we've just read chapter 5, verse 9 of 1 John. Let's read verse 10 now. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. Now let's stop here for a moment. Remember, we must look at the context of this entire passage. These are not just isolated statements that John now makes as he concludes this epistle, but these are all in reference to or in relation to the truth that he's already established, the groundwork he's already laid, as now he is, again, summarizing what he's already stated. And so when John speaks about the testimony of God, and and that, that testimony is a greater testimony... He's saying that God's witness, of course, is greater than man's witness. And if we believe the testimony of men, how much more so should we, be, should we believe divine testimony? For it is in the truth of the impossibility for God to lie and in his immutability and possibility for him to change that our entire faith and hope rests. Therefore, the testimony of God concerning the person of Jesus, the sufficiency of the redemptive work of Jesus, and the life-changing power of Jesus within one's life is the very foundation upon which we not only live this life, but also have the confidence of eternal life. So let's look at verses 11 and 12 now in relation to that. And this is the record. So he's speaking about the record of God. God beareth witness. God gives testimony. He says God's record, God's testimony, God's witness is greater than that of man's. And then he says in verse 11, 
And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the life, or Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. So the eternal life of which John speaks is not simply a promise of a future life in eternity, but this eternal life is a present reality within those in whom Christ, who is life, dwells. So in other words, eternal life is much more than a promise, for it is the very presence of Jesus Christ within one's life. Now this is so important in relation to all that John is teaching, because remember, throughout this epistle thus far, as he is rehearsing now, John has stated that there are these distinct evidences within every individual in whom Christ dwells, in whom there is a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ and fellowship with Christ and with God the Father through Jesus Christ. So he's saying in fellowship with one another as a result of that, of the fellowship with God. And he's saying here that the testimony of God is true, and if we believe the testimony of man, that's one thing, but God's testimony is even greater than that of man's. Now, in relation to who Jesus is, the Christ, we know even as Jesus said in John's Gospel as we read a moment ago, there's the testimony. Jesus didn't come just self-professing, I am the Messiah, though that is true that he is and, 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 and was and is, yet we find that John the Baptist was sent prior to even Jesus to testify of the truth of who Jesus is. And then as we saw last week in reading through John chapter 1, the, the, John said, I did not know who this was, and this is the very, he is, he is kin to Jesus, physically speaking, and yet he says, I did not know who he was until I saw the Spirit as a dove descend upon him and remain upon him. For he who told me to declare this, which is God, told me, the Spirit of God had already told John, that the Baptist, that is, that the, that, that the one whom the Spirit he would see descending upon and remaining upon, this is the very Son of God. This is the messenger of God, the one who he is a forerunner to. And so John says, I know him because of this, not because mom or dad told me this. No, I know him because God had told me this, and this is the witness. Now, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And so the testimony of John was present, but yet greater than that testimony is the testimony of God. God is the one who bore witness to John to testify to the people. And all of the Old Testament prophecies, of course, pointed to the fulfillment of these prophecies in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of this is the testimony and the record of God, which is true. And if man's testimony is good, if it's truthful, how much more so is divine testimony, this divine witness of who Jesus truly is. But now let us consider all of this in light of this epistle. Because John is not merely or only saying, I don't believe John is simply saying or only saying uh, that Jesus is the Son of God because God says He is, though that's true. But yet, think about the testimony that's already been mentioned throughout this epistle of man. What does man claim? Man claims, I am of the light, and yet he lives in darkness. Man claims, I love the truth, and yet he despises the people of God. Man says, oh, I'm in fellowship with God, but yet he, 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 he runs from truth and rejects truth, rejects righteousness, rejects the people of God, rejects the fellowship with people of God because it's not present within him. And here's something to consider here. So while men say, oh, and even this is true for today, while men's testimony may be, or a man's testimony may be, I claim all of this, God's testimony and God's witness is greater than that of man's. And if Jesus is who God says he is, which of course he is, then everything God says about him, including the transformational power of the gospel of Jesus, whenever one is, is 
uh, living in Christ and Christ in him, the, the transformational power of the Lord Jesus Christ within one's life is going to be evident just as God has declared it to be within his word, regardless of what men may claim. The introduction of Christ in his earthly ministry being through baptism, and yet then when questioning Christ and his authority, and then he spins it around on him, like he said, and says, well, was John's baptism of God or of men? Was this a God thing or a man thing? And who did John baptize? He baptized Jesus. And so then they're stuck in their own deceit, if you will, trying to, uh, of course, catch Christ in, in, in some conundrum, which they could not do, but yet their attempt to do so. So he leaves it to them saying, oh, is this true or not? Then they couldn't answer anything because, of course, if they answered honestly, then they were, uh, they were attesting to the validity of the ministry of Jesus because John himself did so. But then if they said that John was not of Jesus or of God, then, of course, they're saying that John is a blasphemer and a heretic and everything else, and they couldn't say that because they knew John was a prophet and so sent by God. And so they, they were caught in their own deceit, if you will, uh, by our Lord stating that. So you find that it, it, in this case, uh, in the context of, of this passage, not only is it true that God's testimony of the Lord Jesus is true in who he is, but is that not also the case that God's testimony of Jesus in terms of the transformation in a life of one in whom Christ lives is just as truthful? And so whether men, again, men will claim one thing and they'll say, oh, well, I'm of light, but really they live in darkness. Well, guess what? God's testimony is greater than man's testimony. And here's what God says about that. You're a liar. That's what he says. And so the fact of the matter is, again, John is drawing some distinct lines here. We see even by, by way of understanding the context of the entirety of this epistle as we read through these texts, specifically which are written in relation to the testimony of God concerning that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. He came in the flesh and, of course, is God's provision for mankind. So now that I've provided somewhat of an overview of this portion of the text and looking at what we've read this evening, uh, let, let's look more closely at the truth of the text as we would ex examine it more closely verse by verse through this portion of Scripture. So let's look at verses 7 and 8. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. There is much controversy, obviously, within specifically verse 7 of this text, um, and the claim that this one verse is the most significant in all of Scripture, supporting the doctrine of what is commonly referred to as the Trinity, if you will. Uh, however, the truth of the triune Godhead, we must recognize, is not established nor defended by one verse alone. And as a matter of fact, no doctrine of Scripture stands alone on one verse of Scripture. The Scriptures clearly from the beginning, literally the beginning, testify to the eternal triune Godhead, literally from the beginning of Scripture. In Genesis 1.1, the Scripture declares, in the beginning, God. And as I've often explained to you, the name translated God in the Hebrew is the name Elohim, and the name Elohim in the Hebrew is plural in number, as also declared or explained in the following verses of Genesis, when Scripture uses plural personal pronouns, us and our, and when God spoke. And God said in Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our image. Us is plural. Our is plural. One God is speaking. But this is Elohim. So in the beginning, God, Elohim, plural number for God, but yet, or plural, plural number name, but yet we find he says, though it's God singular here, yet Elohim, of course, is plural in number, and then 
God said, let us, plural, make man in our plural image. So plural pronouns, personal pronouns are being used. The point is simply this, that the triune Godhead is taught consistently throughout Scripture from Genesis 1-1 forward. And we find Jesus is declared as the creator. For instance, we find Jesus in creation. We find this to be true according to Colossians 1, according to uh, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. We also find the Father speaking, as we read a moment ago, and the Spirit descending upon the person of the Lord Jesus at his baptism. Remember, Jesus is the one being baptized by John, and then the Spirit in the form of a dove, as a dove, descends upon the Lord Jesus Christ, did he not? And then the Father says, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So here you find the Son, you find the Father speaking, the Son is present being baptized, and the Holy Spirit descending upon the man Jesus at the time of his baptism. So you see the triune God present here uh, at, at this moment, if you will. And so the evidence for the triune God is not established nor confirmed by any one verse of Scripture, as is the case with all doctrine. And with all the, the discussion that is held concerning 1 John 5, 7, much of the time there is somewhat, I believe, of a straw man argument that's constructed about this entire verse, meaning oh, that this is the strongest verse in all of Scripture that testifies to the Trinity, if you will. Well, first of all, as we know, the word Trinity is not even used in Scripture. But also, this verse is not the one verse that, that testifies or, or grounds us in a truth that there is a, a three-distinct-person pers- Godhead that co-equally is eternal, one, one eternal divine being. And so the point is that this, this verse that so many cling to in sense of trying to defend a doctrinal truth is not the end all for the doctrine of the Godhead. That is from the very beginning of Scripture, and so that doesn't really hold water to try to make such a statement. And might I say this as well, it's very important you recognize that there is no biblical doctrine that is established and uh, upon one verse alone in Scripture. Scripture is consistent in its teaching And we find truths that are doctrinal in nature that are teaching us to be consistently taught throughout Scripture. Multiple times we find references made to these truths. And so the fact that you would say that that this one verse is, is, you know, uh, is superior to all other in defending the fact that there is a triune God, well, that's just not true. Um, If you want to look to... Uh, one verse for anything that's very dangerous, you need to look at the consistency of the teaching of Scripture throughout to see the truth of doctrine as it is proclaimed and, and declared. And so it's important that you, you recognize this. And I hold to what is theologically referred to, and I believe most of you, if not all of you, would as well, uh, pro- I believe all of you do, to what would be referred to as Trinitarian monotheism. And this simply, to break it down, would mean that that there are three distinct persons of the Godhead who co-equally are one eternal divine being. Um, as verse 8 of 1 John 5 declares, these three agree in one, so there is no division among them, but they are one. As Jesus declared that he and the Father are one, so the Father, Son, and Spirit are three distinct divine persons who are one eternal divine being. And, and, and it's important that we, we recognize that. And so, again, uh, to just clarify the fact that that First uh, John five seven is so debated and discussed and 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 so much controversy surrounding that one verse, not because of what it says, but just the fact of the matter of its presence. 
the fact remains that there is no one distinct, uh, or there's not one distinct verse that establishes a doctrine and then that's it throughout Scripture. That's just not the case. And so it's important that you recognize that and see the consistency of the teaching of Scripture. And so uh, don't, don't get hung up in that. Verse 10, he goes on to say, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not, God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. Now, here, once again, John emphasizes the truths he has previously declared throughout the previous chapters of this epistle. If one genuinely believes in Jesus as the Son of God, then he will have the Spirit of Christ, the very Holy Spirit of God, dwelling within his life. As John has clearly established throughout his epistle, to have the Holy Spirit within one's life will produce the evidence which John has so clearly articulated in this epistle. To possess the Holy Spirit will will result in one possessing a love for God, a love for the truth of God, a love for the righteousness of God, and even a love for the judgment of God. Remember, we saw that perfect love casteth out fear. We are not fearful of God in the sense of being scared of Him or His judgment, but the judgments of God, the righteousness of God, the law of God, all these things are, are good and they are true. And as a believer, we can rejoice even in the judgment of God, even in the judgments of God. And so we find that we have a love for God and all that pertains to Him and who He is and His love for us and His truth and so on and so forth, that we, are, uh, we, we have a love for Him because of His Spirit, because of Christ Himself dwelling and living within us. Yet if one does not believe God's record of his Son, as John deals with here, or does not submit to the truth of the Lordship of Jesus Christ as God's Son, that person does not possess the Spirit of God. And again, let me explain this to you, okay, in light of what John has already said. God has borne witness of his Son, that Jesus is the Christ. But God has also borne witness through his Word of what a life will look like, what your life will look like, if truly you are in fellowship and relationship with him. So while men again will say, well, I know I'm saved, I know I'm going to heaven, and yet their lives bear no witness of faith and no presence of the Spirit of God, no desire or hunger for righteousness, here's what I would say. Let God be true and every man a liar, and the truth of the matter is God's witness is greater than man's. And so we must recognize and acknowledge that here. And so he's saying that those who do not, who do not submit to the truth of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, because remember, the fact of someone saying, oh, Jesus is God's Son or Jesus is Lord, that means nothing. It's the acknowledgement in one's life in submitting to this truth an absolute belief, biblical belief, meaning one totally entrusting their entire spiritual well-being to this reality of this truth that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God's provision for man. If we are not submitted to this truth daily in our lives, if we are not submitted to this truth as one entrusting ourselves to Jesus, then we are not in relationship with God. We are not in fellowship with Him. And that's what John is stating. So he's saying, look, there is clear evidence when one is in fellowship with God. And this evidence, again, is not just one truth, but it's all of this evidence together bearing witness that this is one who is born again. This is one who is in relationship and fellowship with God. So God's record of Jesus Christ is that He is His beloved Son in whom He is well pleased, and God's record is also that Jesus is Lord, is it not? As a matter of fact, in Philippians 2, or in Philippians, the book of Philippians, Paul writes and says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. To what? To the glory of God the Father. 
So God's witness is not only that Jesus is His Son, it's that Jesus is Lord. He has exalted Him, and Philippians 2 tells us He has exalted Him. Right? He humbled Himself, became obedient even unto death, but that God might exalt Him. And He's done so. Verse 11. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Now here again, John bears witness to something that you, need not, you must not miss. If we have the Son, we have eternal life. Now, why is that true? It's not that Jesus adds eternal life to us, like we have Jesus and now we're going to get eternal life too. No, we must recognize Jesus himself is life. This is the testimony that God has given of his Son. As we've discovered, John's gospel record and his first epistle are very similar in their introduction. The same John wrote them, which both declare Jesus is life. Look at John 1, 1 through 4, the gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Here John makes it clear. Jesus is life. In Him was life. Then in 1 John 1, 1 through 3, the epistle of John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, the Word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So to have Jesus is not only to have life, but it is to have eternal life, for Jesus is life eternal. Remember, Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In Luke's, gospel, or in, in Luke's record, in Luke's gospel concerning uh, Lazarus, I believe it's in Luke chapter 11, if I'm not mistaken, and Lazarus, or is it, is it John? John. Let me turn now. Yes, John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, where you find the account of Lazarus, of course, you remember what Jesus says to Mary, to Martha, whenever they were speaking to him, and they spoke and, and talked about how that Jesus, how that if he'd have been there, then, of course, uh, Lazarus would have, have not died. And if you recall what Jesus said, he said unto them, I am the resurrection and the life. So he's the resurrection and he's the life. So throughout Scripture, we're told that Jesus is the life. First John tells us that. John tells us that. Uh, John in his, in his gospel here further tells us that at the death of Lazarus and the resurrection of Lazarus. And so what we have to understand is to have Jesus is not only to have life, but is to have eternal life. So when the Scripture says this is the record, the record that Jesus is life, Jesus is the source of life, Jesus is the giver of life, Jesus is life personified, and he's the very life of God. He is, life, he is God in the flesh. And so what we see is that he is this life, and he's the light of men. He's come to light the, the darkness in which man is. He came to bring life to that which is dead. He came to, to, to reconcile us to God the Father. And so in saying all of this, that Jesus is the very Son of God, He is the life that God has manifested in the flesh, that we might have a relationship and fellowship with Him. So this record that John bears or concerning God's record of the Lord Jesus is that Jesus is the life. He is the light of men. He is God's light into this world. And so if He is the life, that means if we have Him, we have life. If we have Him, we have eternal life. 
So we have eternal life because we have Jesus. We have, and in having Jesus, we have eternal life. And this is God's record. Again, look what he says in verse 11. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So the record God has given is that if you have Jesus, you have eternal life. Now, let's stop here for a moment and consider this. In light of everything that John has said up to this point in his summarization of all of his epistle, he is saying again, oh, if you say you're of the light and yet you walk in darkness, you do not know God. If you say that you love God and yet you love not your brother, you do not know God. If you say that you love God and yet you do not follow after righteousness, hunger after righteousness, you don't cherish that which God cherishes, you don't love that which God loves, his own truth and righteousness, then guess what? You are not of God. Here's another thing. If you say that you have Jesus in your, in your life, or you've asked Jesus in your heart, quote-unquote, I'm only saying that because of the terminology used today, that terminology of asking Jesus in your heart, here's the thing. The eternal, or, or the eternal life that you claim to have, if you say you're going to heaven, let me word it like this, if you say you're going to heaven, if you say you're going to have an eternity with the Lord, that claim is only as genuine as the person of Christ dwelling in you. So if he is not dwelling in you, then you do not have eternal life. And whatever you may claim makes no difference because remember, all the testimony of man is lesser than the testimony of God. And the Word of God is declaring here the fact that if we have the Son, we have eternal life. But if we do not have the Son, then we do not have eternal life. But to have the Son is not only to have eternal life, by the way, it's interesting that this is one of the latter things mentioned by John in, in, this, in this portion of this text. And the reason I say that is because most people, when you ask them about their eternal state, it's always about going to heaven, right? Oh, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Are you sure? Or even people, when they quote-unquote attempt to evangelize, make statements, if you die today, do you know you're going to go to heaven? Listen, let me ask you this question. Are you living a right now that where you hunger and desire after righteousness because that answer to that question tells me whether or not you have an eternity in heaven or not so the reality is that that the text which john in his text which he is writing here in this epistle he is saying that if we have the son we have eternal life but understand to have the Son is not to only have eternal life. To have the Son is to also have a love for the brethren. To have the Son is to have a love for God. To have the Son is to have a love for righteousness. To have the Son is to have a love for truth. Are you following? Again, it's all of these evidences that are present within the life of those who know the Lord Jesus Christ are in fellowship and relationship with God the Father and God the Son. And so the reality again is that people claim, oh, well, I have eternal life. But one's claim to eternal life is only as genuine as their relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ is. So one may claim all day long, I know I'm going to heaven, but hear me, if that person is not in fellowship and relationship with God through Jesus Christ, all their claims are empty, just like their quote-unquote relationship is with God. They're, it's non-existent. Notice verse 12. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. There it is. And he's talking about spiritual life, eternal life. That's what he's talking about. And remember something, a life that, one who possesses eternal life, it only can be true because he's in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And such a relationship and such a fellowship will be evidenced within one's life by the eight tests which John provides within this epistle, as I mentioned. 
a love for God, a love for truth, a love for the people of God, a love for righteousness, all of these things. They won't, men won't fear God in the sense of being scared of him, but rather reverence him as a father and know him in his love. And so that's what John is, is articulating here within this text and within this specific passage. How many people do you know who claim that, they're, that they are going to heaven when they die? And that's the statements they make. And yet there is no relationship, there is no fellowship evident at all within their lives. Then God says that man's a liar. And look, here's the reality of it. These, these tests and claims that are given um, are, are not simply for us to look at other people. It's for us to examine ourselves. And say, is this true within me? Do I have a hunger for righteousness? Do I have a love for God, for the people of God, for the things of God, for the truth of God? Do, do I fear judgment? All of these things are questions we should ask ourselves. But I'm telling you, we can also see on the surface level so many times people who are making these empty claims and they have no relationship and fellowship with God. Therefore, they are empty claims. In verse 13, as we will see, John goes on to say, which we're not looking at tonight, but just looking at the verse, not dealing with it. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Interesting statement here. That we believe on Him, that we might continue to believe on Him, that we might understand that we have eternal life. Because the word know here does not mean confidence. It means understand. So that we might have an understanding that we truly possess eternal life. Why? Because we believe on Christ. But how does that evidence itself in all the previous, previous manners that John has listed? And he'll go through some of these even more so as we look at this text, the remaining portion of these verses. We will see where this continues to unfold um, as John is, again, reminding us of the previous truths he has established throughout the epistle. So here's the reality of it. God's witness is greater than man's witness. God's testimony is greater. And men can make all kinds of claims, but that doesn't hold water to God's truth. And in relation of who Christ is, see, that's the point. This is the point I'm making. Really, these two are not, a, this is not an additional statement to what is being said. It's an explanation of what is being said. God's testimony of Jesus is this. He is life. He is light. He is my love personified. He is holy. He is righteous. He is true. All of these things, right? And if you possess, if he, if, he, if, he, if he dwells in you, if you possess him, he, he's living in you, the Spirit dwells in you, then his presence will be manifested in and through your life. That is God's testimony. There it is. That's the record God's given us, given us. And therefore, we know we have eternal life. We understand we have eternal life due to all the evidences that are present because Christ is present. Because where he is, his characteristics are going to be manifested. His person is going to be demonstrated. His love is going to be manifested, demonstrated. So that's the reality of what John is saying. So let us understand then, too, that God's record of who Christ is is also revealing the empty professions of men who claim to know Christ, and yet none of these evidences are present. So again, this isn't an additional statement John is making. This is a help, I'm trying to help explain what John is saying in light of the context of the epistle. Because of course Jesus is God. We know that. He's the Son of God. No doubt about that. But what about the people who claim that He's the Son of God and that they know Him and, and that they, they are trusting in Him, and yet all the first four chapters of 1 John are absent in their life? Well, let us understand. God's witness of Christ as a person, 
and in his power and his redemption and in God's eternal purpose as he purposed it in Christ, that God's record and testimony of Christ and the transformation that Christ makes in a life is greater than the testimony or witness of men. So let's be mindful of that as we consider these truths. And Lord willing, next week we'll begin in verse 13 and look at how we understand. We understand all of this because of all this evidence that's been provided for us. This is how we, it's, look, salvation is not a feeling. Fellowship and relationship with God is not a feeling, and neither is it just an experience. Some people look to a feeling, other people look to an experience. No, this is a relationship. This is ongoing, and it's going to, the, the evidence of the presence of Christ within a person will be manifested and demonstrated on a regular basis for those in whom he dwells.